welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We are your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Um, I so enjoyed your episode last week. Well, thank you. It was you. great. I've been listening to Wu-Tang ever since. <laughs> it's been great. Um, I kind of wish I had speakers on my uh, computer at work so I could really get the full effect. Yeah. But headphones are all I have. Yeah. So That's all right. You're in your own little Shaolin. Yeah. I'm in my own little Shaolin temple with the Wu-Tang clam um so uh i'm gonna we're gonna do a little bit of a 180 oh sure that's what we're all about yeah we're just (laughs) we're keeping y'all on your toes you know we're doing one wu-tang one week we're doing dictators we're doing uh agatha christie you don't know where we're going next um but uh it's that time of year it's the middle of january Uh it's a depressing time when all the college students go back to school and also i start teaching at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, And I teach museum studies. And um, I have a new batch of kids this year. I'm very excited. And I thought, you know what? On germs, our our friend Germ, Germ, Germ's Corner Germ, suggested that we do an episode on museums. Which, how the hell have we thought of that before? How did we not do this before? We both work in museums. So today, I'm calling it Muse 101, Intro to Museums. So basically, it's like you're getting a three-credit class for free. Absolutely. Right now. I mean, this is the stuff. Literally, I took this from my (laughs) syllabus and several of the PowerPoints that I teach my kids. So... um, if you are a past student of mine, then you can shut this off because you already know all about this. Uh, yeah, but just go to the sparkly quiz music. Yeah, just go to the sparkly <laughs> quiz music. So first off, I'm going to tell you a little bit about, because I always get this question a lot because people who don't work in museums or public history or even like in nonprofits are not entirely sure what happens inside of a museum and sure. who does what and <laughs> what the jobs are. So I'm going to talk about what museum workers do and what their roles are. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about like the most famous museums and what artworks you can expect. Wonderful. In those museums. I know I get a lot of describe your average work day. Oh. And that is a nightmare. Impossible. It's impossible. It could be anything from like, like, like lifting with your legs, not with your back, like heavy mm-hmm. lifting, you're full of dirt and dust to spending the entire day in front of a computer, like yeah. clacking away. Today and everything I'm in touching something that, is 800 years old, yep. uh, is worth a million dollars, and tomorrow I'm taking staples out of paper for eight hours. Yeah. Like, I, I'm doing grunt work. Yeah. That just happens, you know? So, oh, and also uh, another caveat, the museums that I'm going to be talking about today, this is probably going to be a multi-part series. We'll do Muse, Muse 102 and Muse 103. <laughs> um, we're talking about specifically famous art museums in the world, <laughs> and it's not a comprehensive list. We're talking about Western canon. Um, because there are tons of museums in the world that everyone's heard of. So this is just kind of an intro, and then maybe we'll do a future episode on like science museums and history museums and that kind of thing. If they pay their tuition. If they pay their tuition, if you sign up for the course, (laughs) if you buy the MRM5, which I'm making them buy. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's the only book I'm making them Mm -hmm. buy. Anyway, so another caveat. More and more often, especially today, more traditional titles, museum worker titles, uh, encompass a lot more responsibilities than in the old days. And I'll 
mention that later, but um, these are, this is a good general indication of what these museum roles mean when <laughs> you hear somebody say that they're a blank. So first off, the difference between a registrar and a collections manager. A registrar deals with risk management and documentation of the collection. A lot of paperwork. Um, they develop and maintain record systems. They are often responsible for storage systems, but not always. Um, and they are typically academic generalists. Usually you need at least a master's in museum studies or the equivalent. Um, a lot of times the terms registrar and collections manager, when you're looking for jobs or when you see titles on a website, they're very interchangeable mm -hmm. and have been in the past like 20, 25 years or so. But historically the registrar is the paperwork person. Uh -huh. They deal with all of the loans. They file the stuff away. They deal with like the database system. That's the donors, registrar. donors. Mm -hmm. Yep. All of that. The collections manager is often the hands-on component of collections care. So they move objects, they rehouse, they relocate objects. They oversee the housekeeping, cleaning, packing, and preparatory work for the objects in the collection. Collections managers usually have at least a BA, a bachelor's of arts, and most often you need at least a master's in museum studies or the equivalent. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you've got a curator. People always like, that's the word that everyone knows with museums. So uh -huh. when I was like, I want to work in museums, people say, oh, you want to be a curator? Which is like, uh, what? <laughs> um, and which is weird because currently I am an assistant curator, but uh, <laughs> curators are responsible for the intellectual and aesthetic control of the collection. Often they are the driving force behind active collecting. So we need more of this in the museum. We mm -hmm. need more, you know, contemporary artists. We need more artists of color. We need more women artists, like that kind of thing. Um, they develop exhibitions, they write the catalog, and they write a lot of academic papers right. and books and that kind of thing. And they are academic specialists. Mm -hmm. So usually these people have a PhD. Um, they're often hired from academia specifically. And then you need at least a master's degree in a specific area of study, a specific area of art history. And often a PhD is required for curatorial departments. So a curator, while they um, kind of develop an exhibit and do a lot of the writing for the label copy and do all, almost all of the writing for the catalog, mm -hmm. or at least like bring on other academics to write for the catalog, they are not dealing with like the design of an exhibit mm -hmm. for the most part. I mean, they, they have a hand in it, but it's certainly not like they're not out there with like a compass and like measuring walls. Right. Usually. They're also not just like in their office, like with their head in between their hands, just like <laughs> lovingly staring at a, like a watercolor painting for oh. eight hours a day. And if that was the case, <laughs> every art historian would aspire <laughs> to be a curator. I mean, that's the way it is. But, and again, you hear curator of a small history museum mm -hmm. or curator like that term is also very loose right now. A mm -hmm. lot of times a curator is a collections manager and a curator and a registrar all wrapped in one, especially in smaller mm -hmm. institutions. But again, these are like historical, like traditional titles. Yes. And then we have the archivist anyway. <laughs> and then we have, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> an archivist. And I know you can tell me more about this, but, uh, in What's the, your definition uh, this of is my not job? My definition? Okay. This is the MRM5 definition. Okay. So, do you want to tell them what the MRM5 means? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the museum uh, registrar's like textbook, museum registration, is the fifth edition. Why are you laughing at me? Because it sounded like you did not know the title well, of the book. Well, it took me a second because um, I'm just so used to calling it the MRM5. It's the museum um, registrar's method book. Okay. Um, and it is the Bible by which all registrars and collections managers um, deal with. And it's um, developed by 
the Association of um, American Museums, the AAM. Mm-hmm. So an archivist systematically identifies, selects, protects, organizes, describes, preserves, and makes available to users archival materials. They work with paper documents, photographs, maps, films, and computer records, usually, but not always, two-dimensional work. Wow, that sounds like a lot of, a lot of verbs that you had in there, huh? It's like they do a lot of work, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. This wasn't directed at me. I see. No, 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 no. Archivists uh, do a lot of heavy lifting, both intellectually and uh, Physically. literally. Yes. To be an archivist, you need at least a master's in library and information science. Full stop. Um, an archivist is not, repeat after me, a, a librarian. librarian. Uh, and those words are not interchangeable. Although um, a library may have an archivist and an, a museum institution may have an mm-hmm. archivist and a librarian. Yes. I'm an archivist who went to library school, yes. but did an archives program. Yes. So I'm technically a librarian, but I don't know what a lot of librarians do. I would frequently go to my coworkers and be like, how would a librarian do this? <laughs> exactly. And I feel like a librarian would agree with you on this. Yes. That librarians and archivists... We are different. Are different. They're under We're the different, s- but we have the same goals. Yes, exactly. They're under the same umbrella of collections care. Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm glad I did that right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't like pull the plug know, you out of your pull, microphone. <laughs> you were like, so help me Jesus. How many times do I have to tell you what an archivist Archivists does? lovingly blow the dust off of... <laughs> Fourteen hundred year old manuscripts, mm-hmm. and just stare at the pages. There's just I I know that no please I'm derailing you no but please. there's so many I don't know why mm-hmm. I don't know why and I'm sure you've heard this too oh I'm sure the general public seems to think that librarians just read books all day <laughs> I know what must be nice to just read books all day yeah well I mean curators just like you said yeah hold their chin in their hands yeah. and, and tilt their head gently look and little look at cloud. art. <laughs> and, they, and they say things like, it's all about man's inhumanity to man. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> and which is part of it. I mean, sometimes you blow dust off of things, but that is so reductive when it comes to your job. Mm-hmm. So, you know. And then we have a conservator. Yes. A conservator is extremely hands-on. Very important. They perform all invasive work on museum collections objects, including cleaning, repairing, and slowing degradation. They oversee the physical care of collections, and now most often independent contractors as opposed to staff members of a museum. Um, There are larger museums that have conservators. Mm -hmm. I know that the Strong has a conservator, Hillary. She's great. Um, But smaller, medium and smaller museums, especially art museums, hire out yeah. because for a lot of conservators that makes the most sense and mm-hmm. is the most like they can make a living that way. Um, and we have a couple in our stable of conservators and they're wonderful people who know a lot about a lot of things. Cause maybe you're a place with a smaller budget and you only mm-hmm. have the funds to be able to fix, you know, to be able to, you know, to do some work on one painting a year or something. Exactly. It doesn't make sense to have. Yeah. A person, a person like all the time, all the time. Yes, exactly. Um, usually an undergraduate degree in chemistry is very helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, conservation. And I considered it very briefly when I was an undergrad, like, Ooh, I like cleaning things. And then you had to do science. Oh yeah. Chemistry has a lot to do with conservation. Mm -hmm. 
Um, conservation programs focus equally on chemistry as well as practical collection care and preservation techniques. Um, you also have to have a super type A personality, uh, which I do not have. Uh, you have to be able to like, there's no like, eh, that's good enough. Like there is, yeah. there is a weird mix of like precise, like a precise mind and also flexibility to a certain extent, because at one on one end or another, you have to kind of like put your hands up and be like, look, I can't do anything more with mm-hmm. this piece. You just have to either like put it in storage or deaccession it or whatever. Sometimes oh, there's a lot of trial and error. Yeah. There's a lot of trial and error involved. Sometimes things are beyond help. Some things are, you know, require some, maybe some, uh, experimental techniques and mm-hmm. you might have to like work through that with your collections manager, like that kind of thing. So I'm going to take this really expensive <laughs> painting we have, and I'm just going to dump it in a bucket of Clorox. What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, that's thumbs up, thumbs down. That's number one. That's plan A. <laughs> no, okay, got plan B. Um, car wash. Car wash. <laughs> we strap it to the roof of my Kia Sorento. And we, drive, <laughs> we drive it through, through. the laser wash car wash tunnel. <laughs> exactly. That's conservation. Plan that's what B. <laughs> also, we don't condone either of those. No, movements. we do not condone either one of those things. That's horrifying and conservators listening to this we are very sorry we don't mean it um also i'm, I'm gonna use i keep using the term deaccession terms that people don't know accession is to bring an object into your collection and formally bring it into the collection that usually involves the board and a lot of paperwork and like sometimes money changing hands and deaccessioning is removing something legally from your collection and then getting rid of it so deaccessioning the process of deaccessioning just does it legally. It doesn't actually kick the physical object mm-hmm. out of your collection. That's called disposal. Mm-hmm. So I always attribute this to impeachment. Deaccessioning is impeaching the object. It goes through all of the paperwork and everyone says, yep, we don't want this anymore. And then you have to go through the disposal process. And that's a Find separate a situation. For it. Find a home for it. And in New York State, any funds that are gained as a result of something going to a new home, so either selling it mm-hmm. or, you know, it goes to auction, that sort of thing, or maybe like another institution pays you for that mm-hmm. material, all, any funds that you get immediately have to go back into your collections fund. So you can't sell your Renoir to keep, to pay your gas bill, Yeah, but uh, you can sell your Renoir so that you can take that money and buy some Mayonnaise. What's a modern? What's a modern thing? <laughs> oh, some Namjoon Pike pieces. Yeah, yeah, some Namjoon Pike robots like crazy. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and it is considered unethical to do that to like sell your Renoir to keep the lights on in your museum. But it is not illegal. Mm-hmm. And there have been several uh, museums on the East Coast that will remain remain nameless who have done that and have been deaccredited mm-hmm. or have had some sort of you know. I don't know, disciplinary measure, but it's not like, you know, nobody's getting arrested. There's a lot more ethics in museums than people. It's true. Think. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Oh, this is so fun. I love this. I, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to just like, I I knew this was going to be a conversation and I love that. You know what? (laughs) I'm an adjunct professor and I love discourse. That's your title. Yeah. I'm an adjunct. No, no, no. I'm just an adjunct lecturer. Uh, no, I'm an adjunct professor. Well, RIT, Damn. you know, like they're fancier. <laughs> anyway. 
your exhibition coordinator or exhibitions designer or curator of exhibits, et cetera, et cetera. Someone, something to do with mm-hmm. exhibits. This is the person who works with the curator to design and implement in-house exhibits. So this is the person who picks the wall color. This is the person who like does the elevation in CAD. Like this is the person who does like the actual design work. Mm-hmm. They design floor plans. They, pr- they project a schedule ahead of time and like assign people to tasks and they organize contractors and preparators if need be. Preparators. What's a preparator? That's a very art museum term. It is an extremely art museum term. I know. And it's also, uh, it's not a word that, um, word recognizes. (laughs) It's like, "Mm, did you mean prepare? (laughs) Nope. I did not. (laughs) A preparator designs and builds housings for objects, both for on display and occasionally for storage. So, um, when you store objects in a museum, when it is not like a 2d object, uh, if it's something that's like, um, a bowl that's like, you know, 6,000 years old. You can't just put that bowl on a metal shelf and be like, done, metal shelf, bowl, done. Like bay three, shelf seven. Can't do it. So you have to create a housing for it or a mount for it that supports this bowl Mm -hmm. so that if there is, God forbid, an earthquake or if there's some shifting or just so that you can grab it easily Mm -hmm. as a person like taking it off the shelf, it's just safer in its housing and that's where it lives when it is not on display. And that's what preparators do. They make those. Um, These are people who usually have just like hands-on experience building and designing things. They have really good like buildy brains, really good at spatial awareness. That's that's on their uh, job description. Yeah, buildy brains. Yeah, yeah. Um, TM, TM, TM. Um, also just, this was all collections people. So I'm just going to go quickly into the other departments in a museum. Often a museum will also have an education department, um, at the Memorial Art Gallery. It's called academic programs because we're under the university of Rochester, um, which education department based on what kind of museum you are would have at least a couple people with hands-on educational backgrounds who can create educational programming for children and adults. Um, this kind of programming is different from public programming, which is usually taken care of by marketing and engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, marketing or marketing and engagement, PR, et cetera, um, is just what it sounds like. They're the ones who take care of all the social media and coming up with fun public programming as well as PR stuff like talks with artists, openings, et cetera, press releases and media interaction. They're the party department, at least. In, <laughs> and I mean that at not, the mag, they're the party department Yeah, at the mag, they're the party department. Like, they're young and fun and funny and they like Photoshop stuff. And they're always like, you know, they're fun. They're fun gals. Like I don't present them TikTok at all. Me. Uh, yeah. Well, we're tweet not us on, on t- Facebook. Yeah. Tweet us on Facebook. Um, that we have not, the Meg has not got onto f- TikTok yet, but it's, it's, it's coming. It's coming. There's no way it isn't. Then there's development. And if you work in a nonprofit, you know exactly what this is or, or ad- institutional advancement or advancement. Yeah. Um, These are basically your money people. They're the smooth talkers, the glad handers, and the Natalie dressed of the museum personnel. (laughs) As soon as she said Natalie, I was thinking this was a person. Yeah. That would be a fun, that'd be a fun, like, stage name. Oh, yeah. Natalie dressed. Oh, that's my drag name, Natalie dressed. (laughs) (laughs) It's so, like, esoteric. Like, (laughs) this is Natalie. Anyway. They're the Natalie dress people. They're always the people like our, our guy, Joe, Joe is like always in a bow tie and he's, oh, he's a glad hander. Oh my God. He, as soon as he looks at you and talks to you, you are the only person on the planet. He is so charming. 
Um, they're the extroverts of the museum, the only extroverts of the museum world. Um, and they're the ones most likely to become serial killers. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm just sorry. Just making sure you're listening. Yeah. Um, these are basically the people who try to get donations from both individuals as well as corporate yeah. donors for your institution. They have to talk about wills with old people way more often than you'd think. They, they do have to say the words like, let's talk about your end of life plan, which I do not envy them that. No. Absolutely not at all. Certain personality type. Yeah. It definitely a certain personality type. Someone who uh, is happy to like eight ask to ten, for things, ask for things. I always saw it as when I was in grad school and I had to take a development class, I was like, Oh, so this is professional lying. Like, <laughs> and by lying, I meant like I, and this is very reductive of me as, as a young, you know, grad student who's like, Hey, I'm, I'm better than this. I'm going to be a curator, you know, like whatever. But these are the people who I saw them as like lying to people like, we're close friends, aren't we? We're going out for coffee all the time. So mm, you make a lot of money. What do you, do you want to support our educational programming? When in fact, it's, you know, it's, there's, it's a grayer area than that. Like you're developing relationships with mm -hmm. people who want to support the museum. And because you believe in the mission of the museum, you want other people to believe in the mission of the right. museum. So. Um, and then you have your normal facilities, visitor services, cafe workers, et cetera, all the people who you actually see when you're at the museum and do a mm -hmm. lot of the work. Um, and a lot of times people, when museum work is very hard to get into, and this is the level where a lot of people enter, mm -hmm. regardless of what their educational background is. Like a museum is. shop. Yep. Or like a food court or yeah. a cafe employee. And they all work, we all work together to make mm -hmm. the museum the best possible thing that it can be. Mm -hmm. I'm going to shout out to the Strong's Environmental Services team. They, yeah, are, hell yeah. they are the hardest working and nicest people that we have yeah. at the museum. Facilities for sure. Like our facilities guys, they carry all those stupid paintings. They paint all the walls when we're like, oh no, we need a wall built like by next Wednesday. And they look at their calendars and they're like, all right, we can do that. You know, like they're <laughs> very good at it. And when we're like, when Courtney and I walk into a gallery and we're both like, it's like muggy in here. Is it muggy in here? Then we call Jamie and Jamie like turns up the whatever and presses a button mm -hmm. and cranks something and then like calls a guy on an old fashioned phone and then it's fine. You know, they're great. It's amazing. Say Jamie, <laughs> say Jamie, it's awful muggy in here. I feel like sweating my face off. Like pea soup. <laughs> it's like pea soup in American. Get down here. Um, all right, now let's talk about some famous museums you should know. Please. Uh, I'm going to rattle off a bunch of famous museums, when they were founded, their collections, and some famous objects that they own that you should know. Wonderful. Great. Stateside. <laughs> the Metropolitan Museum of Art, New York City. Okay, I'm not going to do that the entire time, I promise. <laughs> A.K.A. The Met. The Met. It is the third most visited museum in the world as of 2018. It was founded in 1870 for the purposes of opening a museum to bring art and art education to the American people. And the Fifth Avenue building opened on February 20th, 1872 at 681 Fifth Avenue. Um, this is the, it's on Museum Mile near the park, basically. Mm -hmm. um, the permanent collection consists of works of art from classical antiquity and ancient Egypt, paintings and sculptures from nearly all the European masters, an extensive collection of American and modern art. The Met maintains extensive holdings of African, Asian, Oceanian, Byzantine, and Islamic art. And the museum is home to encyclopedic collections of musical instruments, costumes, and accessories, as well as antique weapons and armor from around the world. The term encyclopedic collection 
uh, the mag is also <laughs> an has an encyclopedic collection and is I think the only other encyclopedic art museum in New York state. Oh, wow. Um, we are sometimes called a mini met. We are oh, mini meaning like, look at you. I know. Well, mini, like, like very mini, like microscopic. Um, but, uh, encyclopedic means that it goes from antiquity to present day mm-hmm. to contemporary art. Um, several notable interiors ranging from first century Rome through modern American design are installed in its galleries. So there's a, um, there's a, I think there's a Morris room there or no, there's a, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright room from one of his homes. Um, it has two satellite locations, both in New York city. There's the cloisters at Fort Tryon park in upper Manhattan. Uh, that contains an extensive collection of art architecture and artifacts from medieval Europe. And it also holds the seven French tapestries known as the hunt of the unicorn from the 16th century. You've definitely seen that on March 18th, 2016, the museum opened the Met Brewer museum along Madison Avenue on the upper East side. And that extends the museum's modern and contemporary art program. So its permanent collections contain over 2 million works with far too many iconic pieces to name all, but I will try. There is the temple of Dendor, which Mm -hmm. is uh, fully reassembled from Egypt as a gift from the Egyptian government in 1965. Um, It is the highlight of the Sackler wing and is often where a lot of weddings and galas are held. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Met holds many original photographs from Alfred Stieglitz, uh, Washington crossing the Delaware by Emmanuel Lutz, the Amanthus sarcophagus, which is said to have contained the remains of a Cypriot King major drawings by Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci and Rembrandt, as well as prints and etchings by Van Dyke, Durer and Degas among many others. The Robert Lehman collection, which is said by the museum to be quote, one of the most extraordinary private art collections ever assembled in the United States. It includes excellent examples of the Italian Renaissance drawings by old masters and Spanish painters like El Greco and Goya. Uh, a collection of Cubist art, including works by Pablo Picasso, Georges Braque, and Juan Gris. And also, I should mention the Asian Art Wing, which is often overlooked by visitors, but is a gorgeous collection, whether you're interested in Asian art or not. It has an incredible display of jade objects, as well as a complete Ming Dynasty-style garden court. It is stunning. It's like, it's under a a skylight. Mm -hmm. So it really does, when you walk in there, it feels like you're in an Asian garden. Wow. Um, and it's modeled on a courtyard in the Master of the Nets Garden in Suzhou. Uh, the Met also houses the world's oldest surviving piano, which is a 1720 <laughs> model by Bartolomeo Cristofari. Also, I should mention the Costume Institute, um, which was merged by uh, merged with the Brooklyn Museum's collection of American costume, which was around since 1903. In 2008, they combined. It is housed in the Anna Wintour Costume Center, which opened in 2014. Uh, the Costume Institute is what puts on the Met Gala every mm-hmm. year. Uh, P.S. The Met Gala, also known as the Met Ball, the money is just for the Costume Institute. That's it's, crazy. It's not for the Met as a whole. It is just for the Costume Institute. It is the biggest fundraising night in New York City since mm-hmm. 1995, thanks to Anna Wintour. They raise like tens of millions of dollars that night, yeah. and it is just for the Costume Institute. And I cannot imagine that the other curatorial departments do not hate <laughs> that more than anything. Uh, for a, for a closer look at something like that, you should watch the acclaimed film oceans eight. Yes. Oh yeah. You really get an insider's look <laughs> at the Met Gala more so than the third Thursday in may or whatever that documentary yeah. is. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Definitely watch oceans eight. It's worth your time. Watch it twice. Uh, the Museum of Modern Art, or the MoMA. 
Uh, it's an art museum located in Midtown Manhattan, New York City on 53rd Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. It plays a major role in developing collecting modern art and is often identified as one of the largest and most influential museums of modern art in the world. MoMA's collection offers an overview of modern and contemporary art, including works of architecture and design, drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, prints, illustrated books, and artist books, film, and electronic media. Uh, the idea for the Museum of Modern Art was developed in 1929 primarily by Abby Aldrich Rockefeller, who is the wife of John D. Rockefeller, mm. and two of her friends, Lily P. Bliss and Mary Quinn Sullivan. Lily P. Bliss has donated quite a few pieces to the Memorial Art Gallery's collection. Well, how about that? Um, it, she was a collector of the artist and um, influential like art collector Arthur B. Davies, and uh <laughs> she gave all of his good stuff to the Met and the MoMA and then the dregs were sent to us. So, but she gave it to us. She <laughs> gave it to us. So that's all that matters. Um, those ladies are known variously as the ladies or the adamantine ladies. Ooh. I know. Uh, they rented modest quarters for the new museum in the Herkshire building at 735th Avenue in Manhattan and it opened to the public on November 7th, 1929, nine days after the Wall Street crash. Timing. Yeah. Rough. Um, the MoMA is considered by many to have the best collection of modern Western masterpieces in the world. And MoMA's holdings include more than 150,000 individual pieces in addition to approximately 22,000 films and 4 million film stills. Ooh. Access to the collection of film stills ended in 2002 and the collection is mothballed in a vault in Hamlin, Pennsylvania. Can you imagine being the archivist for that? That would be interesting. Um, the collection houses such important and familiar works as the following. Salvador Dali's The Persistence of Memory, which is the melting, melting. clocks one. Mm -hmm. uh, also, side note, Salvador Dali's work consistently is very small. Interesting. It is smaller than you would expect. Uh -huh. um, it is like most of his work is smaller than a sheet of paper. That's why he designed a lollipop wrapper, yeah, exactly. I guess. exactly. He just likes things in miniature. Um so another piece, Max Ernst's two children are threatened by a nightingale, which a lot of like laymen don't know, but is a very influential piece of surrealist art and is in a lot of art history textbooks. So I figured I would mention that. Jasper Johns's flag, mm -hmm. uh, Roy Lichtenstein's drowning girl, which is that uh, 1963 piece with that blue haired woman drowning in the thought bubble that says, I don't care. I'd rather sink than call Brad for help. I've seen that. <laughs> Uh, Kazimir Malevich's White on White, which is a very important work of um, minimalism. Um, it's literally just a white square on a white background. Yeah. When I was like four years old, mm -hmm. I went to the Carnegie Museum of Art with my dad yes. and saw something else that was like a white on white thing. And mm -hmm. they called it apartment building. Oh, and boy. I was like, what the, the hell? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I get the concept of minimalism where it's just like a distillation of like like concepts, sure. Like this red string hanging from the ceiling and bolted to this floor. That's art because it's that string holds everything. And like on one hand I get it, but on the other hand I'm like this isn't interesting to look at. Like this is it's not. Uh -huh. Like there's not there's nothing to chew on when you're looking at the red string. You know what I mean? Yeah. All the work, you have to do all the work. Yeah. 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 You have to do all the work. Maybe I'm a lazy. Uh, and that's certainly not what I'm implying. But if if you're someone who is trying to enjoy artwork, just kind of like let artwork wash over you, which is art for art's sake, art poor la art, minimalism doesn't allow that for you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I, I want to say minimalism 
has made modern art has has contributed to modern art getting a reputation of being yeah a, bad, too bad esoteric yeah, yeah yeah I mean there's other aspects a lot of people are like my kid could do that that's kind of where that comes from I think so I think it's done more harm than good but that's my personal mm. art historian take um, they also own one of Matisse's La Dance, the dance, uh, Monet's water lilies triptych. That's uh, at the so moment. so many of them. I know there's so, so there's many, so of them. many goddamn water lilies out there, there. Is, but this is like the big one that they put in like a, <laughs> a room. I know he did a lot of that. Um, Picasso's Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, which yeah, is a very important. influential piece. Very big. I cried when I first saw it. I don't even like it like that much, like aesthetically, mm -hmm. but I, you know, saw it so often and I wrote about it a lot in grad school. So when I turned the corner and I saw it, I was like, Oh my God, I don't know. Uh, Jackson Pollock's one number 31, which is when you think of Jackson Pollock, it's that piece. It's that gray scale wow. with mm -hmm. the white, um, then goes the starry night, Andy Warhol's Campbell soup cans and Andrew Wyeth's Christina's world, which is one of my favorite pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, side note, a lot of Van Gogh's that are familiar, are owned by uh, museums outside of the Van Gogh Museum. Right. So the Van Gogh Museum has a lot of his um, like drawings and personal objects, and um, they have a sunflowers, but they don't have like the heavy hitters. The Those are in like yeah. major museums. Not that the Van Gogh Museum is not a major museum, but they're like you know, right. Um, the so MoMA closed for like six months yes. in 2019 mm -hmm. and um, their archives put out a really great interactive timeline um, online that that is all about like the history of the museum and like has a really like a lot of great photos and audiovisual materials and mm -hmm. pictures of artwork and stuff like that on there. It's, it's, it's like really, really great timeline um, that everybody should check out. Um, it won uh, Merak's online publications award oh, for 2019. Okay. That's cool. I'll so. definitely have to check that out. I've, I've known, I've talked to a couple of people who just saw it cause they just reopened after the renovation mm -hmm. and uh, the reviews have been mixed. Interesting. Yeah. Some people were like, wow, it's like, it opens it up. Mm -hmm. It's like, so interactive now and then other people are like it's too chaotic you can't focus on um, one thing hmm. so i will reserve my judgment okay uh we're heading west to the art institute of chicago shout out to our podcast brothers a triviality yeah we're gonna go to there oh i cannot wait to go to there i'm gonna take so many pictures i'm gonna cry in front of something i just know it <laughs> Um, the Art Institute was founded in 1879 and located in Chicago's Grant Park. It is one of the oldest and largest art museums in the United States. The museum hosts approximately 1.5 million people annually. Uh, its collection, stewarded by 11 curatorial departments, is encyclopedic and includes iconic works such as George Surratt's A Sunday on Le Grand Jatte, which is that pointillism piece, Pablo Picasso's The Old Guitarist, which every guy in college oh, had a picture yeah. on his wall, mm -hmm. uh, Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, which I'm so excited to see, and Grant Wood's American Gothic. Um, its permanent collection of nearly 300,000 works of art is augmented by more than 30 special exhibitions mounted yearly. Can you That's imagine? That's a lot of exhibitions. Oh, so many exhibitions, I can't even imagine. Uh, the most recent expansion, the Modern Wing, designed by Renzo Piano, uh, opened in 2009 and increased the museum's footprint to nearly 1 million square feet, making it the second largest art museum in the United States after the Met. Wow. Yeah. Um, the Art Institute is associated with the School of Art Institute of Chicago, a leading art school, making it one of the few remaining unified arts institutions in the United States. 
Um, so a little bit about the history of that. In 1866, a group of 35 artists founded the Chicago Academy of Design in a studio on Dearborn Street with the intent to run a free school with its own art gallery. Um, the organization was modeled after European art academies, such as the Royal Academy. Uh, the Academy's charter was granted in March of 1867. Also, a little side note about uh, the Art Institute. John Hughes included a sequence in the Art Institute in the 1986 film Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is set in Chicago. <laughs> Uh, the paintings, also the paintings used in the 1970 Parker Brothers board game masterpiece are works held in the Art mm-hmm. Institute's collection. I'm sure That's you great. know that. All right. On to Europe. To Europe, you say? I say the Europe. To the Louvre. Um, <laughs> the Louvre is the world's largest art museum and historic monument in Paris, France. It is a central landmark of the city. It is located on the right bank of the Seine in the city's first arrondissement. Uh... <laughs> I think my mouth is getting too big. I don't you I'm remember. Not pronouncing you have it to make your tiny mouth on the French city's word. first arrondissement. <laughs> Approximately thirty-eight thousand objects from prehistory to the twenty-first century are exhibited over an area of seventy-two thousand seven hundred and thirty-five square meters, which is seven hundred eighty-two nine hundred and ten square feet. In twenty eighteen, the Louvre was the world's most visited art museum, receiving ten point two million visitors. Uh, The museum is housed in the Louvre Palace, originally built as the Louvre Castle in the late 12th to 13th century under Philip II. Remnants of the Louvre. Louvre. How am I supposed to pronounce that? Louvre? Louvre. Louvre. Okay. I'm just going to say Louvre. I'm just going to say Louvre. (laughs) Uh, Remnants of the fortress are visible in the basement of the museum. It's called the Keep. Oh, cool. um, The original part that you can go visit there. That's really neat. It's like you walk... Uh, into this like stone section and there's this big round keep there and like they know what the medieval so it's just like like. instantaneously you're just like in a medieval yeah castle basement Mm -hmm. that's cool i love that um the museum opened on august 10th 1793 with an exhibition of 537 paintings the majority of the works being royal and confiscated church property yeah Uh, The collection was increased under Napoleon and the museum was renamed Musée Napoléon. But after Napoleon's abdication, many works seized by his armies were returned to their original owners. Uh, The collection was further increased during the reigns of uh, Louis XVIII and Charles X. And during the Second French Empire, the museum gained 20,000 pieces. The collection is divided among eight curatorial departments, Egyptian antiquities, Near Eastern antiquities, Greek, Etruscan, and Roman antiquities, Islamic art, sculpture, decorative arts, paintings, and prints and drawings. Let's talk about the pyramid. Architect I.M. Pei was awarded the project and proposed a glass pyramid to stand over a new entrance in the main court, the Cour Napoléon. The pyramid and its underground lobby were inaugurated on October 15, 1988, and the Louvre pyramid was completed in 1989. And the second phase of the grand plan, the Pyramid Inverse, or the Inverted Pyramid, was completed in 1993. Yeah, that's the upside down one in the other mm-hmm. court. Uh, the Louvre has two satellite museums, Louvre Lens in Lens, France, uh, that was be, that was opened in 2012, and the Louvre Abu Dhabi, which opened in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, famous works of art. There's too many to count, but I'm going to start. Go for it. Include the Venus de Milo, the Nikkei of Samothrace, also known as the Winged Victory, uh, Bernini's bust of Cardinal Richelieu, the Mona Lisa, of course, but also all the Da Vinci's from the Da Vinci Code movie. Like 
every Da Vinci Again, Code. Again, the Mona Lisa is also so much smaller than you think. And so much it's smaller. Annoying how popular it is because what it is now is it's like in its own little like glass cage mm-hmm. on a wall, and you can't just go look at it because there are seventeen thousand tourists in front of you, all trying to get their selfies in front of the Mona Lisa, which is not an impressive painting. No, it's not, and it. I mean, it is. It is because it's Da Vinci and his his like treatment of of flesh is so beautiful, but you can see that treatment in any number of his right. religious paintings. Mm-hmm. So the fact that and it, if it wasn't for Picasso and the fact that it was stolen from the Louvre in the early twentieth century, it would not be as big of a deal mm-hmm. as it is now. But there you have La it, Jaconde. La Jaconde, the Mona Lisa. Um. So, oh, the Da Vinci works that are at the Louvre. Yeah. Virgin and Child with St. Anne, St. John the Baptist, and Madonna of the Rocks. Also, Jacques-Louis David's The Coronation of Napoleon. It's uh, huge. That is... That's a huge piece. Massive. David works in a very large scale. Mm-hmm. He is not... Um, yeah, he's not Dali on that. Like, he... And his his pieces are, like, super well lit, and his bodies are, like very dynamic and his eyeballs are enormous. Like everyone's like yeah. surprised. There's um, two versions of that. The mm-hmm. one is at the Louvre and the other is at Versailles. And it's basically the identical painting, except in one, his robes are red and the other, his robes are blue. Yeah. And he did it's all of it. Enormous. It's like, like I wouldn't be exaggerating that much if I said it was like the size of a swimming pool. Like, Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, for more on David, which is very interesting and just about the French revolution and his like obsession with Napoleon and his life and all of this stuff. Um, Simon Shama's power of art about David and his painting, um, the death of Marat is fantastic. Uh, so I highly recommend that, um, you might be able to get it on PBS or the BBC. Uh, Jericho's the raft of the Medusa. Ugh. That's also mm-hmm. there. Delacroix's Liberty Leading the People, very famous. Um, also, the Code of Hammurabi is there, mm-hmm. uh, as well as Ang's The Velpissant Bather and Vermeer's The Lace Maker and The Astronomer. Oh. So mm-hmm. beautiful. Also, Vermeer tends to work on a smaller scale as well, but they're like jewels. They're so yeah. stunningly beautiful. When, last time I was in Paris mm-hmm. with my mother, please, um, <laughs> there was a Vermeer exhibition that they, it was like the largest one in the world that had gathered all of these, you know, all of the as many as they could yeah. of the extant um, paintings of Vermeer and had them all in one location and then had like paintings by their, by his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. So like a lot, wow, sorry. I'm just turning, I'm just stealing your podcast. I don't right care. Now. No, please. Um, it was a lot of stuff where like, there were only so many things to paint pictures of. Yeah. So mm, this lady was in the studio playing the piano mm-hmm. and then that guy saw his painting of her playing the piano and they, he thought, well, I might like to paint a painting of that lady yep. playing the piano. And so they had a lot of like side by side comparisons of like, okay, well, here's Vermeer's work, but then like, here's mm-hmm. this guy's work and here's this guy's work. And yep. you could tell that he copied off of this guy. It was really, really, yeah. really interesting. It's super interesting how like the studio system kind of like just kind of, it's like, um, it's like a, I don't know. It just kind of like branches off of each other mm-hmm. and everyone's kind of looking back to somebody else or their teacher yep. or like their friend. It's, it's cool to see. And when, um, curators kind of like, uh, make note of that mm-hmm. and make that, um, uh, available to the viewer, yeah. even the layman viewer, uh, it's cool to see. And it kind of helps you to understand like what the art world was like during that time right. period. And even now, like the idea of this influential, like branching off is really cool to see. 
cool. We probably looked at the same Vermeers because I saw the Vermeers at the Rijksmuseum and I was like totally into it. Look at us. All right. The Prado, also known as the, uh, officially known as the Museo Nacional del Prado, is the main Spanish national art museum located in central Madrid. Uh, it is widely considered to have one of the world's finest collections of European art. This is true. Uh, dating from the 12th century to the early 20th century. My stamp of approval. Uh, it is based on the former Spanish Royal collection and the single best collection of Spanish art, including the most extensively represented artist, which is Francisco Goya. Uh, it was founded as a museum of paintings and sculpture in 1819. And it also contains important, important collections of other types of work from other European countries and some American, but not a lot. Uh, the Prado museum is one of the most visited sites in the world and is considered one of the greatest art museums in the world. It has the largest collection of Italian masters outside of Italy. Wow. Uh, the collection currently comprises around 8,200 drawings, 7,600 paintings, 4,800 prints, and 1,000 sculptures, in addition to many other works of art and historic documents. As of 2012, the museum displayed about 1,300 works in the main buildings. That's not a lot. It's not a lot. Um, so they're really spreading their stuff out in a major way, which is great because it lets things breathe. Like yeah. You can't like pack stuff on. Uh, examples of the collection include Bosch's The Garden of Earthly Delights and the Haywain Triptych. Uh, and my famous, and my, you're famous. And my, yeah, my famous. Uh, and my favorite Flemish artwork, which is The Triumph of Death by Peter Bruegel the Elder. Mm. Uh, most notably, these uh, paintings that I just mentioned are Netherlandish Flemish pieces uh, that are not housed in Low Country Museums. Also, uh, Velasquez's Las Meninas, which is the probably the most famous piece in the collection. The Spanish love Las Meninas. It's very influential. What is that? It's the little like princess girl like looking in the mirror, and it's uh, she has uh, her like ladies okay. in waiting around mm-hmm. her, and there's like a man in the far back. It's like got it's got great perspective. Mm-hmm. There's a great vanishing point. It's an important piece of art historic work. Uh, the Descent from the Cross by Roger van der Weyden, uh, Caravaggio's David and Goliath, Peter Paul Rubens, The Judgment of Paris and the Three Graces, and Goya's The Dog, the 3rd of May, 1808, and Saturn Devouring His Son, yeah. which is that one of the guy like wildly like munching on a baby. Uh, it's a great piece. Uh, in 2009, the Prado Museum selected 14 of its most important paintings to be displayed in Google Earth and Google Maps at extremely high resolution, with the largest displayed at 14,000 megapixels. The image's zoom capability allows for close-up views of paint texture and fine detail. Um, so you can go look at pieces from the Prado Museum right now and get like really get up in there. Um, the Rijksmuseum, which is the museum, the major museum that I just most recently went to, uh, is a Dutch national museum dedicated to arts and history in Amsterdam. The museum is located in the museum square in the borough Amsterdam South, close to the Van Gogh Museum, the Stedelijk Museum Amsterdam, and the Concert de Gabau, or the Concert House. Uh, the Rijksmuseum was founded in The Hague in 1798 and moved to Amsterdam in 1808. And in 2013 and 2014, it was the most visited museum in the Netherlands with record numbers of 2.2 million and 2.47 million visitors, respectively. It is also the largest art museum in the country. Uh, museum has on display 8,000 objects of art and history from their total collection of 1 million objects from the years 1,200 to 2,000. <laughs> they stop hard at the year 2,000. Really? Yeah. How about They're, that? Um, no, like, lo- we're not encyclopedic. You know, they're like, nope. Their quote unquote contemporary artwork is collections of um, mostly Dutch 
artists from like 1995 to like 2000. Huh. And then it's just like hard stop. It's just, they're not interested in it. Yeah. And that's okay. Like they've got plenty of good stuff. They don't need to like play in that space. Um, among in their collection masterpieces by Rembrandt, Franz Hals and Johannes Vermeer, which are the big golden age of Dutch painting. Uh, the museum also has a small Asian collection, which is on display in the Asian pavilion. They have a hmm. separate pavilion for it. Uh, the collection contains more than 2000 paintings from the Dutch golden age by notable painters, such as a Jacob van Roysdael, Franz Hans, Hals, Johannes Vermeer, Jan Steen, Rembrandt and Rembrandt's pupils of which there are many. Uh, the Rijksmuseum is best known for the night watch by Rembrandt. Little detail about that. The real title is called Militia Company of District 2 under the command of Captain Franz Bannock Koch. For much of its existence, the painting was coated with a dark varnish, which gave the incorrect impression that it depicted a night scene, mm. uh, leading to the name by which it is most commonly known. Mm. It is actually during the day or morning, I think, um, but it's still called the Night Watch. Uh, the varnish was removed in the 1940s, so fairly recently. In July 2019, a long and complex restoration began. The restoration is taking place in public in a specially made glass enclosure built and placed in the Rijksmuseum and is being live streamed. I was there when it was in the, wow. the glass case. The plan was to move the painting into it starting when the museum closed for the day on July 9th and then to map the painting, quote, layer by layer and pigment by pigment and plan conservation work according to what was found. As the painting has always been on display, even those who knew it best had much to learn because they never like wow. had it in storage to look at it closely. Um, other famous pieces in the Reichs is Vermeer's The, Mi the Milkmaid, the Little Street, The Love Letter, and Women in Blue Reading a Letter, and also Jeremiah Lem Lamenting the Destruction of Jerusalem by Rembrandt. I took a picture of the old man's forehead because it's just the rendering of skin and wrinkles <laughs> in that forehead I was so astounded by. Is the director of the Rijksmuseum named Taco Dibbett? Yes, I was going to say that. <laughs> the director of the Rijksmuseum is named Taco Dibbett. He made it to the name of the year bracket, like in oh, 2018. Yeah, of course. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Taco Dibbett. He is a Dutch art historian. <laughs> He's the director of the Rijksmuseum. His name's Taco. And Taco, like T-A-C-O. Taco Dibbett. <laughs> and that's his full name. The Rijksmuseum is also enormous and beautiful. And frankly, if the painting is of a Dutch golden age, you can be pretty safe in assuming that it's in the Rijksmuseum. That's just like a trivia thing. If it's a Vermeer, it's probably in the Rijks. If it's a Rembrandt, it's probably in the Rijks. Um, also, the Rijksmuseum Research Library is part of the Rijksmuseum, and it is the best and the largest public art history research library in the Netherlands. It is stunningly beautiful. Um, they also have a great app that's easy to use and has fantastic high-res images of a lot of their collection that's on display. And I highly recommend, if you can't get to Amsterdam anytime soon, to download the app because you get to see, again, like you can zoom in on really cool details of a lot of great paintings. Um, and finally, the State Hermitage Museum, a.k.a. the Hermitage. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, the Hermitage is a museum of art and culture in St. Petersburg, Russia. It is the second largest art museum in the world, and it was founded in 1764 when Empress Catherine the Great acquired an impressive collection of paintings from the Berlin merchant Johann Ernst Gutzowski. It has been open to the public since 1852. Um, its collections, of which only a small part is on permanent display, comprise over three million items. Uh, the numismatic collection accounts for about one-third of that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Uh, this includes the largest collection of paintings in the world. 
The collection occupies a large complex of six historic buildings along Palace Embankment, including the Winter Palace, a former residence of Russian emperors, and apart from them, the Menshikov Palace, Museum of Porcelain, storage facility at Straya Derevnia, and the eastern wing of the General Staff Building are also part of the museum. So it's like this whole complex. I'm not allowed to visit the Museum of Porcelain. There's no. just <laughs> too much thing to go wrong yep, there. Too many things to break there. Um, the museum also has uh, several exhibition centers abroad, and the building was initially given this name because of its exclusivity. In its early days, only a very few people were allowed to visit Hermit Hermitage. Uh-huh. You weren't allowed to go in. Um, as mentioned before, there are several offshoots or dependencies of the Hermitage. There's the Hermitage Amsterdam, Hermitage Italia in Ferrara, as well as several satellites scattered throughout Russia in Vyborg, Omsk, and Kazan. Omsk, you say. Omsk. Omsk. It's up in Siberia, which is crazy. I mean, you got to have some culture. Yeah, I, I got to have some culture up there. Uh, famous pieces in the Hermitage include Madonna Lita by Leonardo da Vinci, The Lute Player by Caravaggio, Danae by Rembrandt, a Persian portrait of Fath Ali Shah, The Stolen Kiss by Jean-Honoré Fragonard, and Composition 6 by Wassily Kandinsky, as well as the most comprehensive collection of Russian art from the 11th to the 19th centuries, and an encyclopedic collection of Russian jewelry and decorative arts as well. And a little detail about the Hermitage. A population of cats lives on the museum grounds and serves in a, as an attraction. The museum has a press secretary dedicated mm-hmm. to the cats. And three people act as caretakers. The cats live in the museum's basement. And they also appear on the embankment and on the square during the summer. In previous eras, they roamed throughout the museum galleries. It's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, there's mice catch the is a mice. problem. Yeah. In 2010, the director of the museum's cat program... I'm going to say that one more mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. The director of the museum's cat program stated that there were 60 cats on the museum grounds, even though the staff has a joke that officially the museum is only supposed to have 50 cats. Arena uh, Popovitz, who became the head of the cat department, I'm going to say that one more time. Uh, the head of the cat department stated that the cats were, quote, as well known as our collections. In May 2013, the count has grown to 74 cats of both sexes, mm-hmm. but neutered and spayed according to the cat director. Yeah. Uh, there are kitchens with a <laughs> plural for preparing their food. Quote, they all have different preferences. Oh my God. And they even have a small hospital for the cats. In I the think Hermitage. you can also like, uh, donate money to like adopt a specific yes. one. You can adopt a cat and you get like a letter written by it. Thank meow, you meow. so much. <laughs> meow, meow. And like a paw print Hot and all four that stuff. mice <laughs> this week. Mm-hmm. Eaton's good. <laughs> Eaton's good. Yeah, those are the most like spoiled. Eaton's good in the Japanese department. Yep. <laughs> so that was my quick and dirty on museum work. Very and good. Museums. So um, my quiz is related. It's called Stewardship and Preservation: A Quiz on Things People Collect. Question number one. A lot of people like to collect and wear a specific type of mid-century jewelry, which is made of the earliest plastic created from synthetic compounds. It's easy to spot, because if you rub it, it smells like paint thinner. What is this jewelry called? Question number two. Philately, or stamp collecting, is the world's oldest formal collecting hobby, and around 20 million people are active stamp collectors. Within 10 years, when did the U.S. Postal Service start issuing stamps? Question number three. Early baseball cards are worth a mint today, but you could get them easily in the early 20th century two ways. In packages of tobacco products, and what other more family-friendly product? Question number four. 
Sneakerheads, or sneaker collectors, really got the hobby going in a major way in the mid-80s, when Nike released a brand to the public that was originally made just for the biggest basketball player of all time. What is the name of these highly coveted sneakers? Question number five. Despite a name that implies mystery, or maybe Katy Perry, this comic book publisher is holding its own against juggernauts DC and Marvel, with recognizable comics such as The Mask, Sin City, Hellboy, and maybe less recognizable ones like The Amazing Screw on Head, Dr. Giggles, and Fat Dog Mendoza. What publisher am I talking about? Question number six. I know you know your wine. What size bottle is bigger? Is it the Balthazar or the Methuselah? Question number seven. It may not have paid for anyone's college degree, but for a hot minute there in the late 90s, early 2000s, the Beanie Baby craze convinced a lot of people that they'd be rolling in cash just by collecting those lumpy playthings. What was the name of the company and the man who created the toys and the craze that went along with it? Question number eight. We know that the term for a coin collector is a numismatist, but what does a natophilist collect? I'll give you a hint. It's a subcategory of numismatics, and the material collected is a lot lighter than coins. Question number nine. Patek Philippe is responsible for some of the most collectible watches ever made and the most expensive watch ever sold, $31 million. But don't think too hard about this question. Where is Patek Philippe located? And finally, question number 10. In honor of my Aunt Phyllis, who is inexplicably and horrifyingly collects clown memorabilia, I'm going to name four clowns, and you're going to tell me if they're real famous clowns or something I made up. Number one, Coco the Clown. Number two, Blasfo the Clown. Number three, Doink the Clown. And number four, Puddles Pity Party. I'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers. Everything about my museum was spectacular, including the price. One dollar. Now that may seem a bit steep, but it was worth it. Look at what I gave them. Quite a lot of Roman terracotta. Ribbon lava from the flanks of Edna. Statuary, ride a dromedary. See the temple tumble and the Red Sea part. McNamara's band, the fattest lady in the land of pickle. Prehistoric hand, a strand of Pocahontas hair. Crow and Sue are going to be showing you some rowing through a model of the rapids on the Delaware. Armadillas, clever caterpillars. Reproductions of the Cyclops, retina crystal. Blowing, automatic sewing, Venus on a shell, another works of art. Educated fleece, a type of Aborigines, two ladies join across her knees, a Mona Lisa made of ice. Hot and fast, forgotten and forgotten, spots of cotton gin, a night we lot inside, and better see that twice. One iguana, snakes, another fauna. Got no bearded lady, but we're getting her. When you duck out, take another buck out, run around the block and see you, run around the block and see you, run around the block and see a new show start. Wonderful. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> I always ask my students, first day, I say, what do you collect? And then we talk about collecting. Or and that's how we get into like, it. Nothing. No, actually, I was expecting a lot of kids to be like, I don't collect anything. But a lot of them were like, oh, I collect this. I collect this. It was weird. <laughs> it was, I got more out of it than I thought I was going to. All right. Question number one. A lot of people like to collect and wear a specific type of mid-century jewelry, which is made of the earliest plastic created from synthetic compounds. It's easy to spot because if you rub it, it smells like paint thinner. What is this jewelry called? Is this Bakelite? It is Bakelite. Uh, Bakelite was developed by the Belgian-American chemist Leo Bakeland in Yonkers, New York in 1907 and patented it in 1909. 
The creation of a synthetic plastic was revolutionary for its electrical non-conductivity and heat-resistant properties in electrical insulators, radio, and telephone casings, and such diverse products as kitchenware, pipe stems, children's toys, and firearms, as well as jewelry. Its chemical name is polyoxybenzylmethyl-Langley-Colon-Hydride. That's 36 letters long. Uh, there's also a Bakelite Museum in Somerset, England. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I guess I think about it as like radios mm-hmm. and like maybe like handbags. Yeah, there are uh, handles okay. for handbags. Yeah. It was, uh, it was uh, so instead of tortoiseshell, which was very expensive, yeah. you could get a Bakelite handbag handle. And that was like, it looked enough Look, like tortoiseshell. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was like a cheaper alternative to tortoiseshell. Um, question number two, philately or stamp collecting is the world's oldest formal collecting hobby. And around 20 million people are active stamp collectors within 10 years. When did the U S postal service start issuing stamps? It's a great question. Um, 1800. Ooh, it's 1847. Ooh. Okay. Which is later than I was expecting yeah. too. Uh, Congress authorized United States postage stamps on March 3rd, 1847, and the first general issue postage stamps went on sale in New York City on July 1st of that year. A five-cent stamp featuring Benjamin Franklin, while a 10-cent stamp depicted George Washington. The province of Canada began issuing stamps on April 23rd, 1851, and the first stamp in Canada depicted, as you may assume, a beaver. I was going to say a moose. Oh, close enough. I mean, you know, or a maple leaf or, you know couple guys playing hockey. Uh, a cup of Tim Hortons coffee. <laughs> roll up the rim. Uh, Canada, we know. Uh, question number three. Early baseball cards are worth a mint today, but you could get them easily in the early 20th century two ways. In packages of tobacco products and what other more family-friendly product? Hmm. I mean, my first instinct is like bubble gum. Okay. I mean... Uh, Chewing gum. I mean, I'll I'll give it to you. It's candy in general. Okay. Yeah. Um, The most famous card and the most expensive for the grade, just so you know, is the Honus Wagner from the American Tobacco Company T206 white border set in 1909. From Pittsburgh. Uh, Yeah. Honus Wagner from Pittsburgh um, and played for the Pirates. Uh, The most famous T206 Honus Wagner is the, quote, Gretzky T206 Honus Wagner card. Mm. It's called that because its most famous owner was Wayne Gretzky, who purchased it in 1991 for $451,000. What? Uh, Just you wait. It's changed hands a lot since then, but it was most recently sold in 2016 to Arizona Diamondbacks owner Ken Kendrick for a record $3.12 million. That's crazy. And here's the craziest part. That's not the only Honus Wagner card you can get. Like it's not, it's still rare. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it's not like it's the only one in the world. There are other Honus Wagners, but Mm -hmm. apparently this one has like, um, the texture is weird. Like the, the printing process was like strange about it. So it's like the only one of that kind, I guess, collecting. And you just think about like how many of these got thrown away. Oh yeah. People just like balled it up in their fist after they smoked all their cigarettes. Like my dad used to have a really big baseball card collection. And then when he went to army, his mother just threw everything away. My dad's mom threw all of his baseball cards away. Yeah. That's uh, just <laughs> millions of men yeah. in this country just shake their fists at their sky at their dead mothers. And they're like, how dare you throw all my baseball cards away? Question number four. Sneakerheads or sneaker collectors really got the hobby going in a major way in the mid-80s when Nike released a brand to the public that was originally made just for the biggest base 
basketball. 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 The basketball. <laughs> oh my God, that's the only thing I can say is South African. That's not South Africa. The biggest basketball player of all time. What is the name of these highly coveted sneakers? These Air Jordans? They are Air oh, Jordans. good. I'm glad you weren't like, the Air Jordan F dot. Oh no, there's four. so many of them. Yeah. They uh, More recently, like in the past 10 years, there was the uh, Air Force ones. That's the that's the big one. Um, there are a stupid amount of different kinds of Air, Air Jordans out there now. Um, they're, they're always released to a ton of fanfare. The Air Jordan line has also been associated with many riots, assaults, robberies, and murders. Yeah, it's tough. Um, check out the doc Sneakerheads with a Z on Hulu for more information about this. Z-N-E-A-K-E-R. <laughs> yeah. Sneakerheads uh, for more information about this insane hobby. Question number five. Despite a name that implies mystery or maybe Katy Perry, this comic book publisher is holding its own against juggernauts DC and Marvel with recognizable comics such as The Mask, Sin City, Hellboy, and maybe less recognizable ones like The Amazing Screw on Head, Dr. Giggles, and Fat Dog Mendoza. Ugh. What publisher am I talking about? I'm going to go get a Fat Dog Mendoza tattooed tonight. <laughs> Please don't. I don't no, know what I'm it not means. Going to. I don't know who that is. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, is it Dark Horse? It is Dark Horse. Dark Horse Comics. Uh, founded in 1986, they have most recently acquired the rights to make comic book adaptations of many popular films and series, including Indiana Jones, Predator, Robocop, The Thing, Star Wars, Terminator, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spinoff, Angel, amongst others. Question number six. I know you know your wine. What size bottle is bigger? Is it the Balthazar or the Methuselah? The Methuselah. No. Come on! <laughs> There's so many. I know there's so many. It's the Balthazar. Um, the order is as follows from smallest to largest. Standard, Magnum, 2X Magnum, Jeroboam, Methuselah, Salamanzar, Balthazar, and the largest at 15 liters, the Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. Question number seven. It may not have paid for anyone's college degree, but for a hot minute there in the late 90s, early 2000s, the Beanie Baby craze convinced a lot of people that they'd be rolling in cash just by collecting those lumpy playthings. What was the name of the company and the man who created the toys and the craze that went along with it? T.Y. Yep, that's Ty, Inc. Beanie Babies began to emerge as popular collectibles in late 1995 and became a hot toy, as you and I both Remember vividly the company's strategy of deliberate scarcity, producing each new design in limited quantity, restricting individual store shipments to limited numbers of each design and regularly retiring designs created a huge secondary market for the toys and increased their popularity and value as a collectible. Ty systematically retired various designs and many people assumed that all quote retired designs would rise in value the way that early retirees had. Mm -hmm. The craze lasted through 1999 and slowly declined after the Thai company announced that they would no longer be making Beanie Babies and made a bear called The End. Uh, sometime after the original announcement that the company would stop production, Thai asked the public to vote on whether the product should continue, and fans and collectors voted, quote, overwhelmingly to keep the toys on the market. I mean, literally yeah. like six months later, they were like, I don't know, should we bring them back, guys? So dumb. Um, at the height of popularity, people would flip Beanie's at as much as tenfold on eBay, and some collectors insured their purchases for thousands of dollars. Um, Ty Inc. is the first um, toy company to use a website mm -hmm. as like a marketing thing. They would put it on their tags, like visit our website with like three yeah. exclamation points. In Comic and, Sans. Yeah, in Comic Sans. And um, 
like in late 1995, like, like 1.6% of people were on the internet. Uh So they were like the first to kind of like really break into the internet as a marketing tool. So it's kind of cool. Um, one of the podcasts that I look forward to mm-hmm. most often is called history of the nineties. Um, it's Kathy Kinzora. It's very, it good. comes out every two weeks. Um, she did an episode on beanie babies recently and oh boy. gets like real into it and like does this uses like footage of people getting interviewed at the time mm-hmm. and people that were like big in the buying and selling and all that stuff. And I'm so fascinated yeah. by it. Yeah. I watched like a 20 minute documentary on uh-huh. YouTube about it. And I was like, I need to know more about these people and what they're doing now. Cause I knew a bunch of like, there were a bunch of kids that I went to school with whose parents were like, this is what we're going to retire on is BD babies. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I can't believe it. <laughs> okay. Question number eight. We know the term for a coin collector is a numismatist, but what does a notophilist collect? I'll give you a hint. It's a subcategory of numismatics, and the material collected is a lot lighter than coins. Will you spell that for me? N-O-T-A-P-H-I-L-I-S-T. Ah, that's paper money. It is paper money. Um, Money orders are also a popular collection items, especially in the UK for some reason. Huh. Yeah, also paper money and checks. Is yeah. A, yeah. One time I bought something on eBay from France mm-hmm. and pay, they accepted a check and it was like three months later, I was like, they still hadn't cashed it. And I like emailed them and I was like, Hey, did you get that check? Please did you, check could, it. could you? And they were like, Oh, I got it, but I don't want to cash it. Cause I want to keep it. Like they wanted to keep my American check as like, what? I don't know. It was, you know, for the, 20 bucks or oh, something sure, like that. Yeah. It wasn't like, you know, but they wanted to keep that check as like a collectible or something. So they're like, in a okay, list. thanks, bye. And then like when I closed the account out like six months later, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> well, well <laughs> I guess you can't get that. That's wild. Uh, question number nine. Patek Philippe is responsible for some of the most collectible watches ever made and the most expensive watch ever sold, $31 million. But don't think too hard about this question. Where is Patek Philippe located? Is it America? Uh, they make watches. Is it Switzerland? It is Switzerland. <laughs> uh, founded, <laughs> founded in 1851 by Polish watchmaker Antony Patek. Patek Philippe is one of the oldest watch manufacturers in the world with an uninterrupted watchmaking history since its founding. Uh, one of the company's slogans is, you never actually own a Patek Philippe. You merely look after it for the next generation. Barf. I know, right? Okay, and finally, question number 10. In honor of my Aunt Phyllis, who is inexplicably and horrifyingly a collector of clown memorabilia, I'm going to name four clowns, and you're going to tell me if they're real famous clowns or someone I made up. All right. Number one, Coco the Clown. Real. Yes, he is arguably the most famous clown in the UK during the middle decade of the 20th century. He has an OBE or had an OBE. Wow. Blasfo the Clown. Fake. It is fake. I made it up. Doink the clown. I think that's fake. No, it's real. <laughs> he was a wrestler portrayed by Matt Bourne, who debuted the Doink persona in the World Wrestling Federation in 1992. <laughs> and finally, number four, Puddle's Pity Party. He is real. Oh, he is so real. He participated in season 12 of the reality series America's Got Talent. He advanced to the quarterfinals before being eliminated. And in January 2019, uh, Puddles began a headlining act residency at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas and uh the strong had him. Yeah, he was the main event for one of the play balls that we had. So he's a basically a seven foot tall yep. man yep. who dresses 
like a uh, Rigoletto clown, mm-hmm. like totally like white, white everything, white yeah, like face paint, full white clothes. Yeah, and he and he has a voice like an opera singer. Yeah, a beautiful baritone. Yeah, yeah. But his name is so dumb. It's so weird. I guess he was like like he was in a band and like was an entertainer, and then he started the puddles the clown thing, and then it just yeah blew up. I guess it's yeah. wild. So. Eh. Clown memorabilia. We would go over to her house and, oh my God, there are clowns everywhere. No thanks. Hey, Aunt Phyllis. She doesn't listen to this podcast. All right. Um, so I know you guys have been waiting with bated breath. You're like, yeah, 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 museums, museums. Let's get to our favorite part of the whole thing. Germs Corner. Oh, yes. Tonight, I have the privilege of reading the next uh, trivia piece about Hawaii from Germ. Germ says, some people are obviously from Hawaii. Obama, Bruno Mars. <laughs> some Jason, people are obviously from Hawaii. Obviously from Hawaii. Sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, Jason Momoa, Nicole Scherzinger, but other notable people born in Hawaii include Bette Midler, Lauren Graham, Timothy Oliphant, and Nicole Kidman. He also says, pro tip, in Hawaii, the term Hawaiian is reserved for people of indigenous or Polynesian ancestry. So if you are, quote, from the state of Hawaii, we use the term from Hawaii. For similar reasons, we don't really say Hawaiian pizza or Hawaiian shirt. And Germ, I can say that for the first time ever, I can I can agree with this and commiserate because I hate it when people say buffalo wings because they're just chicken wings. We would never say in Buffalo, oh, I want an order of Buffalo wings. We're here. Mm-hmm. You're in the town. They're chicken wings. Anyway, thank you, Germ. Thank, thank you, Germ. everybody. Uh, thanks so much for listening to my very long episode about museums. Let me know what you think. Please uh, rate, review, and subscribe. And uh, tell a friend. Yeah. And uh, thanks so much for listening this week, guys. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.